This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod, the podcast where we bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with a healthy side-serving of memes. Uh, we're also the official podcast of the Ozpol Shitposting Facebook group, which you can find on Facebook slash group slash Ozpol Shitposting. My name's Noon, uh, and with me is... Zachless Snack. Hey, everybody. Hey, Zach. Thanks for coming back uh, once again. Thanks, Noon. It sort of feels like uh, everything is just absolutely going to shit right now. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah I would agree. Uh, listeners may remember last week I announced that I was officially coronavirus-free, uh, but I'm sick again in an, a new, exciting, different way. So it could be coronavirus, which is which is uh, very exciting, but as you say, everything going to shit. So, you know... Um, yeah, look, it, yeah. admittedly it would make uh, a great story for us. It would. But also, would. Uh, I hope it doesn't happen. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I made a joke, like, in week three of coronavirus, like, the podcast that gives you coronavirus. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, maybe soon that, that joke will not be a joke anymore, so. All right. Or it'll just um, be a really, really accurate joke. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, for our entree, I just wanted to, uh, there's a, one tiny story, which is that the United States is imploding. Um, they announced their GDP, uh, for, for this quarter is minus 33%. It's the biggest drop ever on record. Uh, and it's put them down uh, minus 10 for the year, uh, assuming that the next few quarters aren't bad. So that's been fun. Stock market had a, a, a Trump to distract from this said that he might not let the election go ahead in November and the stock market crashed in response, um, but it's rallied. So that's, <laughs> I, I love stories about stock market crashes, but it, it, it was just a one day thing, unfortunately. Um, How concerned are rich people today? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Quite. Quite. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted to issue a correction for last week. I said that the government had done MyEFO, the Media Economic and Fiscal Outlook. And in fact, it wasn't MyEFO, it was GFO, the, <laughs> uh, the July Economic and Fiscal Outlook. Uh, because in May, they were meant to do the budget, but they were like, oh, there's this whole pandemic thing going on. We might have to leave it a little while. And so this was that. It was their actual budget announcement. Um, but it was so thin, and uh, last week the, there was a Labour guy who was like, it wasn't a plan, it was a pamphlet, uh, and that's true, but that's why it's GFO, which I just think is very How funny. did you confuse those two, Noon? Oh, uh, it's terrible, yeah. <laughs> um, cool, so why don't we move on to our first story, which uh, for once is a nice one. Positivity Ish, as with all positivity corners, it's tinged with uh, deeply upsetting in the tail. elements as well. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to shout out uh, our friend, Confidant, and close member of our Inner Sanctum, Lewis, for uh, putting us onto this story. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of been around, but there's, yeah, there were a bunch of articles that he linked us to. So um, basically, 
because of coronavirus, carbon emissions are way down. Um, it's a bit hard to tell, but it's somewhere between like 17% and 26% across the world. It's 10% less coal being burned and 5% less gas. Uh, and that's sweet. Um, obviously, it's for a horrible reason, like people are dying and can't live lives and uh, the entire world is on fire. So, you know, I mean, it, it's not... Yeah, as you said, not a purely positive corner, but I think it's a nice story. And and although it's likely that emissions are going to rise again once lockdowns are lifted, a lot of that uptake in power generation is going to be from renewables. And that's because of this thing called the marginal cost of production, which I'm pretty sure I've talked about on the show before. Basically, you did in it, noon in the dunce. Noon, noon in the, the dunce. dunce, yeah, yeah. Um, Noon in the Dunce is our explicit uh, only for $100 patrons uh, version. Um, Please sign up to our OnlyFans for only $15 a month. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad option. Um, but basically, it, it costs a lot more to make one more kilojoule by burning coal than it does by leaving a solar panel up. Um, and so that means that a bunch of the power generation from fossil fuels that's been switched off because of low demand won't be switched back on again because it'll be cheaper to switch on renewables. Um, and this is actually a common issue that we see in Australia. We've got all of these like 50-year-old coal power stations that aren't going to finish paying for themselves for another couple mm. of decades. And so there's basically zero chance of them being turned off because there's a bunch of people who are like, well, we've lost money on this if we turn it off now. And that's basically why it's hard to transition to renewables is that people are like trying to make money off the coal. But because there's this huge slump in demand because of coronavirus, those stations are actually being turned off. And so that's the main hurdle towards like a big transition towards renewable energy. So um, it's likely that even as we see demand creep up uh, as the pandemic dies down, um, a lot of that fossil fuel power generation is going to s- still stay off. So, yeah, good news. It really, the, 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 you describing um, that, like, the people not willing to, like, give up their investments in coal really just makes it apparent how much, like, gambling investment is. Like, oh, it's yeah. exactly, like... It's that's just sunk cost fallacy. That's the same as a person sitting mm. at a slot machine being like, I, I've lost a hundred bucks, but I can't stop now because I could just be one dollar away from getting my money back. Except it's just like much, much wealthier people doing yeah, this yeah. on a much broader scale and also uh, doing planetary levels of damage in order to try and recoup some of their extremely unwise investments. And also because they have, like, insurance on it, basically, in various ways. So, like, even if it doesn't pay out, they still get paid, which interestingly does happen at ultra-high poker stakes, but that's a, uh, yet another podcast. Uh, so, yeah, I, I won't that's get into It's a win-win. That. Well, it's a win-win-lose. It's, yeah. it's a win-win yeah. for the people and a lose for the planet. And I guess yeah. it's also a lose for everybody else on the planet. It's a win-win-lose-lose. So it balances out. I think neutral. We can call that a positivity corner, given... <laughs> The horrible context in which we live. Uh, yeah, so. at this, yeah, totally. A neutral corner at this stage is definitely is a Positive positivity corner, relatively speaking. Yep. Um, all right. I think that's all for the pause corner. Um, should we move along to... Fashy Australia. Yeah. Um, what's more fascist than shifting the blame for a societal ill... Onto a racial minority. I would argue few things. 
Yeah, few things. You're right. That's almost the definition. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of the many conditions that make up this nebulous thing that we know as fascism. Uh, but let's get into it. Enough faffing around. Um, so this week, two Brisbane teenagers who've tested positive for COVID allegedly lied on their border declaration forms when they're returning home to Brisbane from a trip to Melbourne. Um, and these two girls, uh, well, girls, they're teens, they're teenagers. It's, it's not, they're, they're technically adults legally, I think. So let's go with teens. Uh, these teens are not white. So you can imagine that the Murdoch press went absolutely fucking buck wild with it. Of course. The Courier Mail uh, put their faces on the front page of their newspaper, which is the only daily newspaper in Brisbane, by the way. Wow. Huge headline that said, Enemies of the State. Fuck and me. published their names underneath. I mean... It's so egregiously that's... irresponsible. And like... False. Like they're not enemies of the state. No, well, you like, don't that's understand. Just not they're true. not. They're not white noon. So. Oh, they're enemies yes. of white Australia. I mean, that's yeah, probably yeah. true. Actually, yeah. But also, point. it's not about race. And just because every single comment under every single social media post uh, of our article is people saying these these teens should be deported, they should go back to where they came from. We didn't make it about race. We're just reporting the facts. And the fact is that they're enemies of the state. Just so fucking awful. But, you know, you, let's be honest. Like, it's not surprising coming from the Murdoch No, no, press. it's 100% par for course. Totally par for course. But every, basically every other mainstream media outlet around the country also published these people's names yes. and faces. Basically, I think The Guardian was the only one that did it. The ABC did it. The ABC had an article being like, it's just terrible how the Murdoch press has released the names and faces of these girls who are named blah, 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 and blah, 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 and here are their photos. <laughs> here's, their here's, here's a picture of the front page that should never have been published. It's just All the Fairfax pages ridiculous. as well. Sydney Morning yep. Herald, Brisbane Times, yep. I think that's the, the Queensland one. And uh, The Age, who, by the way, The Age, you, you remember the, um, the, the Aspen cluster early on in March? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, a couple, you know, a couple of people returning home to... I want to say Turak in Melbourne, a fancy mm -hmm. suburb, from being on a holiday in fucking Colorado and came back with COVID. The age decided not to name the couple at the center of that cluster for legal reasons. Uh -huh. uh, weird how they've now <laughs> jumped feet first into this fucking race-baiting bullshit Look, being publicized to be fair, by the press. People who can afford to go skiing in Colorado can probably afford to sue a newspaper, whereas... Two teenagers probably can't. So that's, you know, a, that's makes actually a really, really good point. No, from a journalistic perspective, you nail on the head. Um, meanwhile, that, that Aspen cluster are now getting pieces in the Murdoch press, like rehabilitating them. There was a, an article published um, in one of the Murdoch papers entitled "Lepers to Legends." Um, I, I just want to le read a little. Um, <laughs> I just want to read a little bit of this. Um, <laughs> A leading real estate executive who was on the Aspen ski trip says those who were infected hold the antibodies that could save the community. He says they have Ugh. built up immunity to fight the deadly <laughs> virus after having their blood tested for research by the University of Melbourne's immunology and vaccine department. Quote, 
We will be saviors. Far from the lepers we were a few months ago, we will be heroes, said leading real estate executive Andrew Sturt as he lined up a putt on a golf course at the Mornington Peninsula this week. Oh, wow. Quote, we will make fortunes from this, he said with tongue in cheek. So amazing reporting there. He's... Like, Ugh. I love that they re- refer to him as a leading real estate executive twice yep. in the first, like, 50 words of this article. Yeah. Meanwhile, those What's teams... What's a leading real estate executive? Like, it's not like... I don't know if that's a huge, like, community that, like, are really, like, building each other up and, like, trailblazing or whatever. Like, they sell houses. I'm not sure how leading you could be in No, it's not, not leading in a community sense. Leading in more, like, how many people's lives have you made more difficult how many poor people Mm. have directly funded your golfing this year yeah that makes sense yeah yeah. he's just like at the top of the uh the like listing top of the charts yeah he's the creme de la creme um (sighs) bless you thank you meanwhile there's these teenagers that are being persecuted in the press have received such a fucking horrendous racist backlash on social media they're now under police guard in hospital it's well they're in the prison unit of the hospital i saw that too and i was looking into it and it seems to be maybe that's not the same okay Uh, i I, i'm well i'm I'm not sure on that i I didn't look into that closely i I also just saw a mention of it yeah yeah so i'm not i'm not totally 100 percent on that um but uh if true that's fucking cooked as well. So, like, yeah, add yeah. to that all of the extra bullshit about um, COVID in prisons, which, yep, that's a whole other conversation. But look, just before we get off this, I, I guess aside from the racism, which is just it's totally predictable from this mm. country. Like, we just have the most unproductive conversations about anything that is basically possible. I mean, so much of the news this week about like. People, like, refusing to wear masks or deliberately trying to run police uh, blockades between states for fun. And these people are getting so much media. Mm. Uh, And none of it nearly as negative as this, by the way. No, no. Um, But just, like, overall, so much of the conversation around coronavirus is coming down to this like individualization of responsibility mm, for the virus mm. right and you're getting a lot of this from like dan andrews at the moment as well um which yeah obviously we know that like widespread welfare-based responses on a systemic level is what is needed to yeah keep this virus at bay it's not it's it ultimately can't come down to just individual responsibility people mm. doing the right thing like obviously that's a part of it but if you're talking about, like, Andrews has been talking about one in four people who get tested aren't isolating. I mean, so many of those people are doing so because they're in they have extremely to go to unstable rent employment. Or yeah. It is. yeah, yeah. Or if they don't go to work, they'll get fired. Yeah. They're like, you know, so, and, you know, we're, we're, we're repeating ourselves because we've had these conversations over and over mm. again, but it's just, um, <laughs> it's even this more country when we're and seeing the opposite. Yes. No, totally. And, yeah, just like it's <laughs> every week is just so fucking enraging what this yep. country chooses to talk about and the way that it chooses to discuss things. Anyway, let's move on. Sure. So uh, we're going to move on to our First Nations story, which is a, a relatively nice one, um, which is cool. Um, it's not 
uncomplicatedly good, but like, um, so there's some new closing the gap targets and a four point plan to implement them basically. And so these have been agreed on by the state and federal governments and some indigenous peak bodies. And we've talked before several times about closing the gap and about our failures to actually meet any of the targets in the closing the gap program. Um, and also about issues about how it's a very colonial approach that, you know, has very like white slash Western ideas about what it would mean to, um, help first nations communities and, and people. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, I'm skeptical about closing the gap and I am skeptical about this new version of it, but I actually think it's mostly pretty good. Um, and so I wanted to go over it in a bit of detail because, yeah, I think that there's a reasonably good chance that this might actually make a big difference for a lot of people's lives. Um, so there are 16 new closing the gap targets. Um, some of the new ones are uh, 15% pure, fewer First Nations people in jail and 30% fewer youth incarcerations within 10 years. That's a pretty big reduction. Uh, I imagine they'll still be massively overrepresented even with those reductions, but it, you know, it, it's a big target. Uh, more education at all ages, especially early childhood and tertiary, um, but also uh, primary and secondary. Um, less people living in crowded housing, less domestic violence, less suicide. This one I thought was really interesting. 15% more of the Australian landmass and 15% more of our oceans covered by First Nations legal rights. Okay. Uh, that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah, totally. And um, I actually think, you know, I was saying that like a lot of this, the Cloaking the Gap stuff's quite colonial, but like this one is a very not colonial target because it it's in the direction of more sovereignty and of like uh, reigniting connections with land and water. So anyway, I think that's a really cool one. Um, and the uh, another one, more indigenous languages spoken and more speakers of all of those languages. So those are all cool targets. Um and I think it's a, a big improvement on the existing targets. Uh, but the real sort of meat on the bone here is in this four-point plan. And, yeah, so the, I'll go through each of the four points. The first one is working groups. And the idea is that these are bodies that can make decisions faster that apply to more specific areas. Um, and they're going to be, quote, shared decision-making between government and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and there was a reasonable amount of detail about what shared decision-making would mean. And one of the things it says is, by consensus, where the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander parties hold as much weight as the government's, which is cool. They specifically mention um, disabled people and women. Um, but there's also this line, uh, relevant funding for programs and services align with jointly agreed community priorities, noting governments retain responsibility for funding, which is just like, you know, just slip that one in there that the government has final say on money that gets spent. But I, I actually think um, it, it is kind of unclear from the document that they've released, which I'll link in the show notes, by the way. It's pretty easy to read, even though uh, it's a bit jargony. Um, but it's a bit unclear. But I think the idea is that these working groups are going to have budgets that they can spend independently. Um, and so the funding is still the government's responsibility, but once it goes to these working groups, it can then be dispersed um, according to their decisions. And so there's going to be policy-based working groups and place-based working groups. So the place-based ones are going to be areas in Australia that um, have high First Nations population. Um, it, we don't know what those areas are yet, so they're going to be announced in the next couple of months. 
But there are going to be these five policy-based working groups, and the areas that they're looking at are justice, which is to say adult and youth incarceration, uh, social and emotional well-being slash mental health, housing, childhood care and development, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. Um, so, yeah, I think those are all good areas. And so the idea is that if this, if I am correctly interpreting this about the working groups having a budget, that's going to mean that, like, um, the people who are working on, say, the housing one will just be able to, like, allocate $20,000 to pay for people's rent or something like that, right? So they're going to be able to spend this money without it going through parliament and everything. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so the second point in this plan is community-controlled sectors. Um, And this basically means it should be First Nations people providing the services that deliver the closing the gap outcomes. So um, uh, one is early childhood care and education. So it means that they're going to develop a uh, First Nations workforce of people who are qualified to do early nations childhood care and education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and so there's going to starting with these four industries: early childhood, housing, health, and disability. And every three years, they're going to have a quote sector strengthening plan, uh, which will basically be to ramp up the targets and potentially to add more industries into these community controlled sectors. Um, there's a little cynicism alarm, but I suspect it's basically like one election cycle away until these sector strengthening plans will strengthen them by taking away their funding. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, this is a good idea. I've also read that there's no additional funding going to Aboriginal orgs as part of the new plan at all. Um, it's like, I, what's it, what did he say? It's oh, I've got a Morrison quote here. He said, this isn't about buckets of money. This is about changing the way that we do things and ensuring that we apply the resources most effectively to achieve that. So it's doing more with the same money uh, I think there will end up being more money put into it, but I'm not 100% about that. Uh, did he definitely say it's they're not adding more? Because I like, they're all... There's like, no immediate new say, agreement. That's no what the ABC yeah, says. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see how this shakes out, but I do think it's true that if we rearrange the way the funding is going so that it's going to Aboriginal organisations and then those organisations are trying to deliver the services to improve these outcomes, it's going to be more effective than the way that we're currently doing it. And that's really, I guess, the point of this four-point plan is to rearrange how First Nations people relate to government and to the closing the gap target and basically to put them in charge of it. So, yeah... um, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, I, I am cynical about implementation and, yeah, not putting more money in is a great uh, sign that it's not going to help. And, in fact, mm. the third point in this four-point plan, I think, also indicates that it's not that serious. And this one is called Transforming Government Organizations. And the general idea is to make the government less shitty for Aboriginal people, even in stuff that's not related to closing the gap. Um, so like, just like random government services will have more cultural awareness or whatever. And I'll just read out the key goals here for this section, um, which in my opinion 
sound okay, but are so vague as to not be very meaningful. So identify and eliminate racism, and they actually use the phrase call out, which I find funny. Uh, embed and practice meaningful cultural safety. That's an actually useful one that I think we should be doing. Um, deliver services in partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organizations, communities, and people. Increase accountability through transparent funding allocations. Support Aboriginal Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islander cultures. Improve engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so, like, three or four of them are just like, we will be good. Generally better, um, in an abstract sense. But yeah. also, we don't have any specific ways in which we're going to dismantle institutional racism. <laughs> exactly. And, like, this is that my least favorite <laughs> of the four points because there's so little detail and it seems like it's not going to happen, right? Like... There's just zero chance that fucking Vic Rhodes is going to suddenly be better to Aboriginal people because of this program. So, I I, I don't know. It's a nice idea, but, like, unlike the rest of the plan, it doesn't really connect very well, in my opinion. It sounds pretty buzzwordy. It sounds pretty... statements, as they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It sounds a little bit like, oh, if we don't mention that we're trying to, like stop racism explicitly that you know people will call us out for it but also if you're not going to back it up then but you know it's these things are complicated anyway sorry go on yeah yeah and i mean it's kind of weird to put this in the closing the gap plan because there's like three things about closing the gap and then this one which is like oh and everything else we do is going to be good too yeah well it seems like it should i mean the it's in the name right it's about setting targets and actually trying to set practical goals for the, like improving the standard of living for indigenous people. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, like s- these vague ideas of like identify and eliminate racism is. Yeah. Cool. Let's just do that then. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Um, it's a big, pretty big question mark for me. Hmm. Uh, and the fourth point um, one was one that I'd never heard of actually before, which is shared access to data and information. And it makes sense like um, that that's important. But yeah, I hadn't heard of this issue before. And while I was writing the notes for this, I look I was looking into this. And there's a whole movement called Indigenous Data Sovereignty or IDS. Mm. Um, and we don't have time to go into it in a whole lot of detail. It's basically what it sounds like. Um, but there's sort of... <clears throat> Two issues. One is that often data isn't collected about First Nations people, and the other is that data that is collected often isn't made available to them. Mm. Um, And so there's often, yeah, important information missing, but then when that information exists, there's no parity about it, and um, the people who it's about are excluded from reading it or, or processing it. Um, and there's been a, a recurring thing throughout the whole of this four-point plan about having data-driven, evidence-based decision-making. Um, and so having data sovereignty or data equity, I think, uh, is really important for that, given that there's these like shared decision-making bodies. They need to have shared information as well. Um, and I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes to a GIJN uh, article about Indigenous data sovereignty and also a work from the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, uh, which is about this. Um, yeah, because I, I think it's pretty cool. And so, um, yeah, this is obviously a way of making other key reforms possible, like the place-based working groups or whatever. There needs to be data about the people living in that area and it needs to be available. And one of the issues that um, is in this data sovereignty thing is about um 
disaggregated data. I'm not a stats dude, so um, listeners, please feel free to correct me about this. But as I understand it, governments normally aggregate data to make it anonymous. Um, so that you'll find out that, like, on average, an 18 to 30-year-old person living in this area has this level of education or whatever. You get an aggregated data. But the disaggregated data is really important for making small local decisions, right? Because, like, it might be 18 to 30-year-old men in a 500-square-kilometer area, but there's, like, six different communities there that have different relationships with... Yeah, education sure. or with uh, justice or whatever. So, yeah. So, um, uh, and in fact, this four point plan makes it very clear it will be disaggregated data that's made available. So, I think that's really cool. Um, that's basically the plan. There's a few other other things like an easy to use dashboard to view data and implementation and goals. Uh, there's going to be a productivity commission review and some other stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that this is basically a really good plan. I think. <laughs> This is about as good as you could expect from a liberal government, definitely. But even like a Labour government, like they're, or, or probably the Greens, they're not really going to be able to do anything really significant for Indigenous sovereignty because they're like committed to participating in the colonial genocidal state that we all live in. Um, so, yeah, I think that these sorts of goals are potentially super valuable in making some change. And I, I think it could be. Yeah, a small game changer, um, somewhat like how our NDIS should have been, or the NBN. Like, if they were good, I reckon they would be a small game changer, and I think this is too. So, yeah, uh, watch what this do you space. Think of, what do you think would be different about the implementation of these goals than the previous ones, which have failed pretty much yeah. ev- on every count every year that they've been in place? Yeah, so... Switching off my cynicism briefly, I think the um, equal decision-making is a really good thing. Um, I think having the yeah the decision-making bodies run by First Nations people and then also having the services run by First Nations people, um, those just seem like obvious, no-brainer, sensible decisions. Um, I also think the issue about like uh, quick turnaround on decision-making is going to make a big difference because... like. You know, we know there's been a million reports about what to do about stuff and the government just, like, doesn't care, so they don't do it. And although these working groups are going to have less power, they're not going to be able to legislate or whatever, I think they're going to be able to make decisions on a faster and more valuable, like, turnaround uh, and that they're going to be able to do targeted programs in a way that the federal government clearly isn't interested in for, Mm -hmm. you know this one nation or people living in this one suburb or that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I mean, you're right. yeah, me too. I hope I'm right. I, look, as I said, I, I, I think in four years, we're going to find that they're quote, strengthening these targets by cutting funding. Um, and yeah. yeah, I like, I, I, if it, if what's that thing I say about voting, if it made a difference, they wouldn't let you do it. Um, so, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still cynical about it. I'm not a hundred percent. I still think closing the gap isn't an ideal approach, but yeah, I think this is a pretty good um, step forward. Cool. I think it's important to note that there's been what well, I've seen pretty widespread skepticism from indigenous First people Nations on social people. media, hundred um, percent, yeah, about this. Um, and maybe we can link just for a little bit of balance uh, an mm, article by mm. Chelsea Bond that she wrote uh, for the conversation, um, where 
yeah, she expresses um, <laughs> a lot of doubt about the the new measures. Um, yeah. So, yeah, for, for a counterpoint, I, maybe we can pop that in there. Absolutely. And look, yeah, I mean, I think regular listeners will know this is possibly the least cynical I've ever been on the show. Um, so, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think a counterpoint is a good idea. And also, like, you know, I was saying about equitable decision-making, like, A, who is going to be on those decision-making boards? It's going to be people, for the most part, appointed by government. So they're unlikely to be massively radical. And also, like, equal decision-making, but the government holds the purse strings doesn't sound that equal to me. So, yeah, yeah, there's... The, there's lots of problems here, um, but it it could go well. Sure. Well, I appreciate your optimism, Noon. Uh, and now, tell me about something bad. You fucked up. So there are two fuck-ups uh, here this week. Um, the first one is possibly my favorite fuck-up in the entire country, Clive Palmer. <laughs> um, and he is suing the West Australian government to open the border. Uh, oh, which fuck, they've I had locked down since coronavirus, and I've just put and in the notes here. It's been really effective. At yes, like... it has. Yes, yeah, they're doing great. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I put in the notes here. Jesus Christ, dude, please stop. Which just really like every time Clive Palmer's in the news, I think that is an applicable remark, um, Clive, and this is no exception. Please stop it, Clive. And like this is such a monumental shit thing that he's doing. I had underestimated how evil and pointless it was. I originally thought this was because he was losing money because he couldn't get fly-in, fly-out workers or something like that for his mines. But no, it's a much sillier, more petty, and more selfish reason than that. Like From Clive Palmer? Yeah, no. I know. <laughs> petty, selfish uh, um, <laughs> court cases? Yeah, no. Um he wanted to go to Western Australia to meet with government and business people, and he couldn't. I hate this. He could. He, I hate this story. He could literally be on Zoom. He could have a phone call. Like, there's no reason why he needs to fly to Western Australia. But he thinks that it's for political reasons because they're like they don't like him or something. Oh, Clive's too. He's too dangerous. Exactly. Fucking hell, Clive. You're only the only person you're a danger to is yourself. Jesus. Well, no, he's now being a danger to the entirety of Western You're Australia. Right. I stand corrected. Uh, and I want Immediate to read a quote, correction. A quote here from the head of the Western Australian branch of the Australian Medical Association, a guy called Dr. Miller. And he said, You'd think that for someone who has some kind of perhaps political aspiration, it's a good idea to maybe read the room, Clive. No one from Western <laughs> Australia is particularly keen on all this being played out in court at the moment. It would be a good idea to just pack up the tent and concentrate on helping Victoria right now or put some resource into the healthcare system in Western Australia rather than the legal system, which is doing fine at the moment. Uh, oh, by that, like, do you mean buying millions of doses of a completely uh, useless medicine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ, dude, please stop. That's, <laughs> that should, please that stop, should be our, our new segment for whenever we talk about Clive. But yeah. look, honestly... Uh, this is par for the course with Clive. The actual fuck-up, in my opinion, is coming from the federal government, who have had several ministers come out and say that they think the border closure is unconstitutional and that they hope Clive wins this court case. And look, I'm no law-talky guy, but I'm 
almost certain it's illegal to comment on cases uh, that are before the courts. Uh, ministers do that all the time when they're trying to avoid questions by journalists who'll be like, so do you think it's fine that this is happening? Like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not, uh, it would be inappropriate to comment on a matter before the courts. And like, they've been reprimanded for it before. Uh, so yeah, Scott Morrison, Matthias Coleman, Christian Porter have all said in, in media appearances that they think this is an unconstitutional border closure and that they think Clive will win. Um, but they've even taken it one step further. Christian Porter repeatedly said that they're not on either side, they're not involved, blah, 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 they're neutral, whatever, whatever. But the High Court have just released documents saying that the that Christian Porter made submissions in favour of Clive Palmer. Um, so <laughs> they are like clowns, man. actively arguing against the border closure and in favour of Clive Palmer's like petty bullshit. I assume only because the West Australian government is a, a Labour government. Like, that is the only reason that makes sense to me for them to do it. Uh, or our government wants to kill us. So, yeah. Hey, hey it's, look, why not both? It's you true, know? yeah. Why yeah. limit your imagination, Noon? All signs point free. to yes. Yeah. yeah, they can be partisan murderers. They don't have to be just one. That's true. All right, that's the end of the the fuck up for this week. Um, but yeah, uh, watch this potentially deadly space. Awful space. Mm. Oh jeez. Um, that wouldn't be a, a bad tagline either. Watch this awful space. Mm. Um, speaking of which, Zach, do you want to yeah, take us on right. to our depressing main course? Yeah. Boy, this is another really rough one. Um. So we're going to talk about the aged care coronavirus crisis, basically. Mm. Um, so a little bit of context. Nationally, we're at about 16,000 cases. We've had just under 200 deaths. This is These figures are current as of Friday the 31st. Yes, Friday the 31st of July. Um, now, of those cases, a whole bunch have happened in aged care, as I'm sure that uh, most people will be aware because it's been absolutely everywhere in the news. So nationally mm-hmm. speaking, there's been uh, almost 700 cases, uh, just over 100 deaths. So In aged of, care, you mean, sorry? Yeah, in aged care. So of total cases, there about 5% of them have occurred mm-hmm. in aged care, but over half of the deaths nationally. Yep have been in aged care. And those figures are even more stark in Victoria where just over 5% of cases have been uh, have been happening in aged care, but over 70% of the deaths wow. from coronavirus have, have happened in aged care. So I mean, that makes sense what problem. we know about the virus, but also, like, as I'm sure you're about to tell us, there's some other shit going on. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I do, it's not exactly unexpected, um, mm. but that makes this terrible result even more upsetting because yes. we not, could have anticipated it and in and there were just a million warning signs so i don't know i'm gonna go p- pretty deep on this one i sort of like started reading about it last night and then yeah i just like mainlined aged care coronavirus articles for like five hours and i'm now Damn. trying to uh so they i i'm gonna i'm gonna try and give a bit of context here and then, and then i'll go into some of the specific details um, about uh, how it sort of unfolded here in Victoria and then uh, talk about how we kind of got to this point and what might happen uh, beyond that. So just for a little bit of context to, to lay the groundwork here. So the aged care sector is split into public and private, right? 
uh, and private homes uh, are either for profit or not for profit. Um, and not for profit ones are usually run by like religious organizations, uh-huh. like Anglicare, for example. Um, so the public aged care homes are run and governed by the states. So in Victoria, for example, the state mandates uh, minimum nurse-to-patient ratios and yep. uh, regulations for uh, staff qualifications and that kind of uh-huh. thing. Uh, but the privately run homes are governed by federal regulations. So the Commonwealth regulations for private privately run uh, nursing homes require, quote, an adequate number of, quote, appropriately skilled staff. Uh-huh, so that's... Of course, yeah, yeah. You cool. see where the, like, difference in... Uh, regulation starts to yeah. come in here, and you know, so already we've got a very complicated system with several different cu- types of home with being regulated by different government different bodies. Yep. Yeah, well, it's already a bit of a mess. But so a vast majority of nursing homes are private nowadays. So in Victoria, just over ten percent of the beds are public, and most of those are in uh, regional areas. Sure. Um, so yeah, within Melbourne itself, al- almost all nursing homes are privately run. Um, so you'll see some figures going around, which are pretty stark, um, that in Victoria, only five cases of coronavirus have been recorded in the public nursing care system, but wow. almost 900 have been recorded in the private sector. Um, wow. That's including staff and residents. Um, so, I mean, and those numbers are pretty wild, but when you consider that there's a massive disparity, like it's still proportionally much more than in the private sector than in public, but- yep you know, the, the real numbers are much larger in the, in the private system. So that's important to remember. Um, but so I'm saying private system, but overall, the sector is still 80% publicly funded or just, uh-huh. up, just under 80% potentially. The numbers are quite hard to get for reasons that I'll get into later. Um, it really seems like something you should be able to just fucking pull up on Google, but Yeah, for anyway. sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure you can guess what's going on there. So, you know, but on top of that, all that government money, residents also pay huge amounts of money. Beds yeah. can cost like half a million dollars to get outright. And then you've got ongoing costs, maybe 50K a year to stay in your bed in yeah. a nursing home. So it's a lot of fucking money. And just as a quick example um, of how those figures break down, and just because uh, it's a little bit fun, I wanted to talk about uh, one private health uh, aged care organization called Estia Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, their second largest shareholder is Carrie Stokes, who owns and runs uh, Channel 7. Yeah. Um, so Estia Health runs uh, 69 nursing homes. Nice. Thank you. Um, uh, which is just around uh, 6,000 places. Uh, and they've got two major outbreaks currently happening at separate facilities in Victoria. They've got almost 200 cases associated with their homes. But so in the financial year 2018 to 19, they got $438 million of funding wow. from the federal government, wow. um, which uh, handily covers the just under 400 mil of their employee expenses bill. That's how much the government spent to save the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, like, I mean, obviously it wasn't to spend the Great Barrier, or to save it, it was to pay their mates to not save it, but like... Yeah, priorities or like aged care is a huge amount of money. Is fucking big business. It's big business. No, and like that's the like that's the reason why Stokes is into is getting in. in, He's you know investing. He's rent seeking. Yeah, and like expanding his stake in this company as well over the last few years. 
like he's not spending anything on Channel Seven. Channel Seven is floundering, and in yeah. fact, SDA Health is valued at like three times the value of Channel Seven at the moment. So that gives wow. you an idea of like how big these companies are. Yeah. But so, um, on top of that, four hundred thirty-eight million dollars they got from the government, they pulled in a hundred and forty-six million dollars from residents, and they've mm-hmm. got all, all over eight hundred million dollars in residential bond money that they're yeah. holding. So we're talking, yeah. Huge, huge amounts of money here in this privatized industry. Um, also important to note, more than 50% of Australian private aged care facilities have been found to be dangerously understaffed. Uh-huh. Majority of those staff are uh, poorly paid, they're casual, and they uh, will usually only have like a really basic certification, like a, a Cert 3 uh, in like personal care, as opposed to being sure. uh, registered or trained nurses. Yep. Or even um, doing, like, specific, like, aged care or, like, um, yeah. Yeah, it's... In, in the yeah, field, ba- yeah, like, you know, uh, an epidemic of, un- of uh, under-training, basically. Um, and it's also been uh, widely reported over the last few weeks that there's been... There's a total lack of personal protective equipment training. You know, when you're dealing with uh, facilities where there's been a coronavirus outbreak you really need to put on and take off fresh personal protective gear or PPE every time you enter or leave a room. And if yeah. you take it off incorrectly, you can spread the virus. And that's like quite a lot of specific training required for that. And the yeah, people working yeah. in these places just don't have it. Um, but so these are, you know, numbers and stats. And it's important, obviously, to try and focus down on the actual human experience of mm. being in aged care. And the experience of being in aged care in Australia is, by and large, fucking horrible. And that's yeah. not something new. No. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just remember there was some reports, I think it was last year, about, like, people being deeply neglected and, like, the food being, like, cold and not cooked and, like, uh, not containing nutrition and people, yeah, being left in their room for, like, days on end without being checked. Yeah, exactly. Just awful, it's, and then like yeah, plus coronavirus. No, well, those on stories top. were coming out because of the Royal Commission. Gotcha. Of course. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the things are so bad that a Royal Commission was held, and but you know, again, that's these right. Are and remember, it was against the government's wishes, wasn't it? They really didn't want to do it, and eventually, is that right? Was sort of forced. I mean, into I'm it, sure yeah. that's the case for fucking most Royal Commissions, yeah. except for the ones yeah. that they bandy about for their own political to gain. Get Bill Shorten. Yeah. Yeah. But so that, that Royal Commission is ongoing, but they have released an interim report towards the end of yep. last year, and it was literally titled A Shocking Tale of Neglect. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from the interim report here. This cruel and harmful system must be changed. We have found that the aged care system fails to meet the needs of our older, often very vulnerable citizens. It does not deliver uniformly safe and quality care for older people. It is unkind and uncaring towards them. In too many instances, it simply neglects them. Mm. Um, and just before we move on, I also wanted to note that there is a widespread issue with younger people, younger disabled people being put into aged care. Mm. Um, and when the Royal Commission was, uh, announced disability advocates, uh, and especially I remember, um, Jordan Steele, John, the green yeah. Senator lobbying to have the Royal Commission expanded to look at the disability sector mm. as well, where mm. there's lots of the same or, or, or similar issues of, um, neglect and cruelty yeah. going on. But, yeah. um, we're not going to get into that today. We just kind of don't have time. And that's a, a whole story. A whole in other itself. thing, yeah. So into this sector, 
which already you you have widespread neglect and terrible care being taken of these older people, incompetence, lack of training, understaffing. You drop a global pandemic. The only result can be chaos and disaster. So at the beginning of June, Victoria recorded its first day with uh, no coronavirus cases for since the start of the pandemic, uh, or since its first case. Um, then about a month later, a staff member at an aged care facility in uh, Rosanna, suburb of Rosanna, tested positive. By the end of that week, 40 new cases had been linked to aged care. And by uh, the middle of July, the Victorian government had mandated PPE in aged care centers. Now, total cases are connected to aged care over 1,000. So it's just, you know, that that's the, the pattern it's that we've skyrocket seen. Skyrocket and exploded. Yeah. yeah. It's and that's how <clears throat> that's how coronavirus does. And so, there's really like too many individual stories here to kind of go into. Like the uh, I, I read, I don't know, a couple dozen articles about this, and every single article that I read had a different, like they were interviewing a different family. You're talking about a different individual tragedy. Like the scale of this is just. Um, incomprehensible. There's so much yeah. kind of individual suffering here, but you know we need to sort of focus down on on a particular narrative in order to try and get at what's happened. So I'm going to talk about the story uh, of St Basil's, which mm-hmm. is a, a an aged care facility in a suburb of Faulkner, which is kind of in the in it's to the north uh, of Melbourne, um, in the north of Melbourne, and they currently. Uh, uh, well, it's the largest aged care cluster in the state. So this is a not-for-profit home that's run by the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of Australia. Um, So they recorded their first case. Um, St. Basil's recorded their first case on the 10th of July and apparently was introduced by three separate staff members who each individually got it from friends and family. So there's like definitely an element of just awful... Bad luck, luck yeah. Yeah. Um, but so by the end of July, uh, by the 29th, St. Basil's had recorded 89 cases in residents and staff. And at that stage, the Victorian government intervened and they moved the infected residents to a hospital and they ordered that the entirety of the staff had to be replaced, which they basically had to do overnight. So the entirety of the staff was stood down and then the Victorian government had to pull together an entirely new staff overnight. Um, and I bet they were super well qualified and competent. Right. So, you know, and you're going to get a mix. You're going to get um, sure, sure. some res- registered nurses who are super experienced and you're yep. going to get uh, other people who, yeah, are like... Just fresh out this at three, yeah. Exactly. Um, but either way, you're bringing in people who don't know the residents, they don't know the sure. families, they don't know the, don't know the facilities... And of course, the family is families of the residents are not allowed into the facility at the yeah. time. And there was basically no information getting out to them at all. By all accounts, it was just a, a, an incredibly distressing experience for everybody sure. involved. Um, and this story is still developing. In fact, while I was writing the notes for this story last night, the ABC published something at like 11.30 saying that six of the new staff that had been brought in to replace the original staff who were you know, who had such a high rate of infection, six of these new staff have now tested positive for coronavirus and mm. all of the remaining residents have now been moved out for, to, to a hospital. So, you know, many of them were in awful condition. 
malnourished, dehydrated, lying in soiled sheets, catheters hadn't been changed, really, oh, really yeah. like just awful stuff. Because yeah, the capacity just wasn't there mm, across mm. this industry, as and we've we've you know seen it across all industries here, where like the hyper casualization of of the workforce has meant that there's been a shortage of uh, people able to take up work. But it's been especially prevalent in the health sector generally, but especially in aged care because yeah. so much of the workers are casual, and these new regulations that have been brought in in order to try and stop the spread of virus between facilities that have uh, basically the government has mandated That's right. that you can only work in one facility means that, you know, people aren't uh, like those workers aren't being able to pick up enough shifts to support themselves. And there's even less work to go around. But it goes both ways. Like the workers don't have enough work, but then also the places that were relying on casual staff who work at multiple aged care places don't have staff now. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's just like, and it was a house of cards, basically. And mm. um, and all it well, really think, needed was like a tiny thing to tip it over and what came was a sledgehammer instead. Yes, yeah. I think that's, yeah, really the, the point is that the sector was already uh, like criminally neglected. Like, you know, malnourished, dehydrated, soiled, catheters not changed. As far as we know, that's just like standard operating procedure. Like they were probably plenty like that before the pandemic and now they've been moved to hospital i mean who knows maybe yeah and I, I, fine, I don't know what the like, conditions were like in st basil's in particular yeah, before yeah, yeah. the outbreak but yeah no you're right conditions uh, and and those specific things as well dehydration and malnourishment mm. uh yeah no totally widespread across the sector you're right so now st basil's has been linked to over so to 124 cases which is the largest age care outbreak in the state as i mentioned and yeah. 15 residents have died that number is likely to have gone up in the time since I got that figure. Yep. Um, and it's just tragic. There's footage of the families of the residents, you know, post the mm. um, tying photos of them to the fences around the facility. And like, yeah, it's, it's really, just really, really heartbreaking stuff. Mm. So um, one of the things that the government has done in order to try and, uh, combat this is that they've cancelled uh, elective surgeries across the Victorian health system in order to uh, free up nurses to go and work in, uh, in aged care homes. But they don't have a policy of automatically putting COVID-positive residents into hospital straight away. South Australia is actually currently the only state that has that policy in place. Wow. Um, and I was reading in the Saturday paper that um, one nursing home in Melbourne had tried to have one of its COVID-19-positive residents move to a hospital but hospitals have the right to refuse to accept those patients. And right. in this case, they did. So, like, they're le like these aged care facilities are left with very few options for dealing with this stuff. They're massively understaffed, but they also can't always get people out if they need to. Yep. Um, if they don't have the ability to look after them. So... As we said at the top, this should have been very obvious that this was coming mm, down the line, mm. right? Um, in a general sense, but also there was a bunch of really very specific warnings that the government had about this. So um, in, in the middle of last year, the, an incident happened at a nursing home in uh, Queensland called Earl Haven. And basically what happened was they, the operator lost their license and overnight the place shut down, leaving all these um, aged Fuck. care residents 
homeless. And so yeah. the government held a review, an independent review, into the closure, which recommended protocols for situations involving the mass withdrawal of staff. Right. Basically, they were like, you, you need to put in place an official system for dealing with times when all of the staff of a nursing home suddenly go away. Right. And like, so this was something that had been specifically recommended by an independent inquiry last year in November. Mm, mm. Um, and the aged care minister like accepted these recommendations, but basically none of them had been put into place yet. Um, aside from that, you know, looking across the world, Sweden, Canada, UK, all uh, over half of the deaths linked to coronavirus came from aged care facilities. So you only had to look overseas to see what was happening. Very early on, in the coronavirus outbreak in Australia, aged care facilities were the hardest hit. Yeah, the famous yeah. case was um, Newmarch House, which is in the west of Sydney, where 19 residents died. And uh, like we're seeing exactly the same problems that happened there that are happening now. That residents weren't sent to hospital off the bat. Carers had to be replaced because they had contracted coronavirus. There was a total lack of knowledge of residents' needs by the new incoming replacement carers and also a total lack of personal protective equipment training. Mm. And this happened like April, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, really the government should have, the Victorian government and, and, and the federal government as well should have seen this coming a mile away. But it, apparently we just weren't ready. Um. Now, I, I'm not going to go too deeply into this because I've already spoken about this for a long time, but I think it's important to look back a little bit and ask how we got to this point because it's interesting to me that like we have an extremely robust public health system here mm. um, and you know, it's, I think, widely considered to be one of the best things about Australia. Yep. But then we have this heavily privatized aged care system and so how do we get there? Um, and after doing a little bit of reading around, the kind of best answer that I could find is um, it's John Howard's fault. Um, I mean, that checks out without knowing yeah. literally anything about it. I 100% believe that uh, yeah. analysis. Yeah. No, and like the attempted privatization of, of our like broader health system was also something that he tried to do. It didn't really work mm. out mm. Um, because you know, the, it's, the public health system is already working well and most people like it, even if they're rich. Um, so, but it did take in the aged care sector. So under the coalition's aged care act in 1997, there was a massive increase in private investment, private equity firms, new foreign investors, superannuation property, real estate investment trusts, all started to enter the residential aged care market. So yeah, he opened it up to private investment basically. And one of the major results of this privatization is secrecy. I've got a quote here from a Flinders University health economist named Julie Ratcliffe. She says, traditionally, the aged care industry is quite closed. It's difficult to access data. And that's partly because we have large private players who don't want to share it. In the health system, economists can access detailed data, but aged care is a data vacuum. So, you know, we don't even, and that's why I say I can't even pull up accurate numbers for the amount of money that goes into the sector from the government yeah. because these private operators are so secretive about their practices. One of the other things that came up again and again when I was reading about this was that the regulator is basically toothless. They're called the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Um, and uh, I'm just going to 
like tell you a little bit uh, quickly about one uh, small example just to show like uh-huh. uh, how they haven't been able to enforce minimum standards across the sector. So one of the major outbreaks here in Victoria um, is at a facility that's run by a big aged care provider called Menorock Life. Now, the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission went in to this facility after the outbreak occurred, and they were found to have breached half of the required aged care standards. Which is, half the standards. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Just, just huge. But also, as, we, as, as, as we've said, that's pretty much par for course across yes, the, the, sure. the sector, right? So last year, the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission sent their assessors to another home in Victoria run by Menorock Life, and that separate facility failed to meet almost half of the accreditation standards. So they were given sanctions, and one of those sanctions was they had to appoint an independent advisor at their own cost in order to oversee like a return to complying with standards, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Menorock appointed its own group operations manager, who was a former CEO, to the independent advisor position, Far and out. then the Department of Health removed the sanctions four months earlier than <laughs> intended. Yep. So, like, there's just there's clearly no uh, lever really here for the yep. government to be enforcing this stuff because, it, like, deregulation is a central principle of mm. like privatizing a sector, right? They can't go in and start to add more red tape. That'll that could lead to a red tape black hole, um, like the IPA hates so much. Um, so as far as what can be done about all of this, um, there's obviously a huge amount of like conflicting opinions and it's, it's hard to kind of, uh, do them all justice, but, uh, the Australian medical association's emergency representative, uh, woman named Dr. Sarah Whitelaw says the need for a centrally coordinated plan that involves the privately and federally run homes as well as state homes has always been apparent. I think we're at the first step of a very long journey. So, mm. yeah, I mean, basically, you, you've got completely different regulatory uh, authorities running these sure. different homes. And, you know, when you were, when we were talking about St. Basil's, for example, there was quite a lot of conflict there because technically it's a federally run home, but the order to replace all the staff came from the Victorian Department of Health. Yeah, right. So yeah. you had kind of conflicts there and... Uh, all sorts of bureaucratic and logistical problems arising from that. So getting rid of that in order to like expedite emergency responses is obviously an important thing to consider. Mm -hmm. Uh, The data access, I think is another really important point. Um, And I think that that would pretty much have to come from legislative change. So that's a longer term thing, but you can't have these private companies just refusing to release their information Um, because we need to know what's fucking happening in the sector. Um, and uh, I've also I've got a quote here from uh, reporter Michael Bachelard, who was writing in The Age, um, which I thought was another interesting point. He writes, privately owned nursing homes are by law private property, so owners and managers might decide they do not want intervention from the state and stand in their way. Reports in the Herald Sun allege that precisely this happened at the privately owned Epping Gardens, which by Wednesday had 86 COVID-19 cases. So that's obviously, you know, I mean, in, in yeah. general just on a practical level, like um, from in terms of like access, both physical access and also like access to data, privatization has put huge roadblocks in making progress in the sector. But like on a, um, I don't know how to describe it on, on on like on a conceptual level, like having aged care being driven by a profit motive 
is yeah. just so fucking perverse. Yeah. I just, it, you know, and uh, like, who was the, like, take the mask off? Who was it? Oh, it was John Howard. Oh, take the mask off again. Oh, and it was just capitalism. It was capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's why it's always John Howard's fault, right? It's because he, it was a very thin mask between capitalism and him. <laughs> you know, he. Yeah. Yeah. He was pretty viciously uh, neoliberal. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, but part of a long legacy and, and we have to mm-hmm. um, uh, understand the Labour Party's massive contribution to that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that all of this stuff, like all, all of these relatively recent problems that you can um, point to in aged care ultimately have this um, profit motive and privatization at the root mm. of them when we're talking mm. about the casualization of the workforce, the massive undertraining and the like these places doing the absolute bare minimum amount of care because that's what's cost effective. And these industries becoming places where people like Kerry Stokes put their money because like they're, they know they're going to get a good return on investment. And these are just billionaires getting massive subsidies from the government. Effectively, this sector is almost 80% publicly funded. And yet we don't have the ability to see how they are being run and make any effective changes. So, I mean, it's obviously a huge problem, but like, I didn't even know that some process of deprivatization or nationalization or whatever would even really get to the root of the problem because Mm. behind all of this is a much broader kind of societal attitude towards old people and the idea of having to look after someone as being a burden. Um, and we probably don't t- have time to really get into a, a kind of philosophical conversation about this, but like, that's not a normal or universal attitude to have towards old people. When you look around the world, you know, putting them into homes, like there's a lot of countries in which it does happen, but a lot of countries in which it doesn't as well. Mm-hmm. And where it's normal to have your parents or grandparents live with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, and obviously lots of people here in Australia would do that as well. Yeah. But I think that there's, yeah, aside from the technical and economic issues here, the like, and, and the, the human one at the root of it, there's also this kind of broader, yeah, issue of the way that we conceptualize growing old and conceptualize a person needing support day to day to live. And I, I think there's some really hard questions to answer there. So I don't know. I hope I've given some kind of, messy overview of of the subject i didn't just want to talk about like um just the deaths that had happened here in the aged care system without providing some kind of context but i I, I don't know if that was too a a bit of history and a bit of uh the present um yeah no i think i think that was good there's some useful information and um yeah a, a bit of the view of the real people involved as well all right well why don't we wrap up our show with Shitpost of the Week? Shitpost of the Week. So this week we've got a Shitpost of the Week and a Shitpost of the Week of our heart. Um, and the Shitpost is yet again a Shitpost. I know we've had three in a row now of, of just absolutely terrible content from the worst people in Australian politics. <laughs> uh, and this one, it was a, a Shitpost of the Week layup assist to Lee Moran, who's a new member of OzPol Shitposting. Um, so thanks, Lee, for this content. Um, and, and Lee posted a 
tweet from Sky News Australia with an article from them um, interviewing Joel Fitzgibbon, Labour frontbencher Joel Fitzgibbon, says people affiliated with the Greens have, quote, infiltrated the Labour Party in order to influence <laughs> policy development. And I just think this is so hilarious. Like, A, no, they fucking haven't. Shut up, Joel. Like, no. What's happened is your fucking party has spent decades being like, oh, the Greens, don't join the Greens. If you're a real lefty, you join the Labour Party. And now people have joined the Labour Party. And you're like, not like that. So anyway, shut the fuck up, Joel. Uh, And... He's the biggest coal shill in the Labour Party. Yes. Because he feels like he's beholden to his electorate. And, like, all his finding is that the rest of his colleagues are not as, like, rabidly pro-coal as he is. And so it's like... Oh, they've been taken over by a Greens agenda. Is this change from the inside? I didn't think it was real. And this one is our shitpost of the week of our heart. And this one is a, a, a... a tweet someone tweeted at us. Um, this is Fury, who is a my friend, confidant member of my inner sanctum, and my housemate, who uh, left Ozpol shit posting a long time ago and has steadfastly refused to listen to our show. Um, but they gotta tweeted, respect it. They tweeted at us. Yeah, that's fine. I, I, I mean, it's pointless saying this to our listeners, but it's not a problem <laughs> if you don't listen to the show. But uh, Fury <laughs> tweeted at us. Uh, they're at Fury underscore rights, by the way on Twitter, and they said, Rumor has it that Noon from Ozpol Snackpod Googles meme and scrolls. He calls it internet tapas. Uh, which is very good. This comes, this is a rumor they've been trying to start because they saw me Google image searching meme. I, I was actually searching for like, I don't know, meme, Clive Palmer or something, but they were like, you're searching for meme! And thought it was very funny. So anyway, uh, that's the, uh, <laughs> Regularly, every time I use Google image search on my phone and I'll type in like, I was looking for one this morning of that, uh, like punk in bed and his mum's taking his temperature and she's like, oh, you're fully sick. Um, and so I searched fully sick, fully sick punk meme. And every time I search meme, Google images is like, would you like to create a special image search for all your favorite meme images? Uh, <laughs> and I think it's extremely funny. But anyway, <coughs> oh God. Thank you, Fury. Uh, I know you're not going to hear the shout-out, but I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and before we go, we've got a review as well. Um, it's a Facebook review, which is nice. We much prefer them on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, but Facebook review is still lovely. And this comes from Jackson Field, who says, Came for the memes, stayed for the well-researched and honest takes on Australian politics. So that's nice. Thanks, Thank Jackson. you, Jackson. We try. <sighs> Sometimes too hard, man. Sometimes we try too hard. Yeah. I think I read too many articles this week. Fucking don't pay any attention until next Friday when we have to hurriedly get all of our notes together again. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Remember that if you enjoy the show and you want to support us financially, that you can do so over on Patreon and, and donating as little as one US dollar a month to us gets you a monthly bonus episode plus access to our private Discord. This month was about the palace letters. Hear my hot takes on the queen. Do it. Uh, otherwise, leave us a review if you haven't. We'd appreciate it. And uh, beyond that, I hope you have a lovely rest of your week and stay safe. Fuck cops, crunch, crunch. <laughs>